Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at F1's latest driver contract drama and what we can learn from it. Plus, what do we do when faced with those big moral dilemmas in life, the big questions that are seemingly very difficult to answer? Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hey everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast with me, Mark Priestley. As ever, thank you so much for joining wherever it is you are in the world. And this time around, it's me that's coming to you from a very different location. So I want to start by just apologising if the sound, if the audio quality is maybe not as good as it normally is. Uh, That's because I'm recording this episode from a hotel room in Phuket in Thailand. And what's weird about that is that I'm not here on holiday, I'm here on business, I'm here to give one of my Formula One talks uh, tomorrow afternoon. So today, it's Saturday afternoon, I've just arrived, but tomorrow afternoon I give my talk and then I go home again. So I've come to Phuket for just over 24 hours, which is crazy on so many levels. Now, they have flown me over here in a very expensive airplane seats. They're paying me a lot of money. They've put me in a very, very nice hotel, which are all amazing things for me. The experience is one that I will never, ever take for granted. Every time I do one of these kind of events, I have to pinch myself because this is dream come true type work. I know that I bring a certain amount of value to the event that I'm attending tomorrow, and that's why they do it. That's how this company can justify spending all this money on bringing me out here, because what I can bring to the event, hopefully, will offer enough value to offset that. I can justify the sheer amount of time it took me to get here, because A, it pays well, and B, I firmly believe that the message that I'm spreading whilst here is a positive one. I hope I'm going to be able to enrich people's lives. I'm going to enhance the way this company operates, the way people feel I hope will be improved after they've heard my talk and we've had this interaction over the course of tomorrow afternoon. And whilst I firmly believe all of those things to be true, before I left the UK to come out here, I happened to be chatting to my eldest daughter. She's 22 years old now, and we were talking about it. I was telling her that I was coming away this weekend. I was coming to do this. And she said to me, hey, Dad, just a serious question. She said, I'm not having a pop here, but just, just, you know, something that's just sprung to my mind. She said, how do you justify all the flying that you do, flying around the world to go and deliver a 45-minute talk? How do you justify that in your mind from an environmental standpoint? She said, you know, you, you tell us about our responsibility to take care of the environment, to reduce our negative impact on the environment, and yet your job takes you all over the planet, and to do that, you're flying. She said, you know, how do you square that off in your mind? And I thought about it for a little while, and I had no answer for her. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks, not only in that moment where I sort of froze and clammed up and... You know, I sort of bumbled my way through an answer of saying, well, there's not really any other way to get there. You know, this is my job. 
there's not really any other, any other way to get to Thailand than fly, certainly in the time frames that I've got available to me. But then later that evening and the following days, I've been thinking about it more and more. It's one of those big moral questions that many of us face, and I'm sure we can all justify whatever we want to if we put our minds to it. We can come up with reasons why doing something that may have a negative impact somewhere is okay to us because it works for us and we can find a reason to make that okay in our minds. And perhaps that's what I'm doing with this. Perhaps what I'm doing is saying, well, it pays enough money that that's how I feed my family, that's how I support my family, and that is my job, it's my career. There is no alternative way to get to some of these locations that I have to go to, and so, of course, that's what I've got to go and do. And that may well be the right answer, that may well be the truth. In my mind, I can pass that responsibility on to the airlines. I can say, well, look, until the airlines come up with a better way of getting me to the other side of the planet, which is where I need to be, what choice have I got? Until they come up with an alternative solution, what else am I supposed to do? But that argument in itself raises a huge number of further questions that I don't even think I've got the answers to, even if I wanted to and had the time to explore it further here. But the point that I wanted to go on and make was, after thinking about this more and more in recent times, I started to think about Formula One as an industry. I mean, I've spent most of my career traveling the world, and a huge part of that, in fact, all of that, has been in some way related to Formula One. For the first half of my career, of course, I was working for a Formula One team. I was immersed in it. We had a massively negative environmental impact. Formula One as an industry has a hugely negative impact on the environment. There's no getting away from that. It's been like that for many, many years. But as our understanding of the global climate crisis has become greater, as this global movement to fight back against the climate crisis has become more powerful, quite rightly, Formula One and other industries have come under the spotlight. How on earth can we justify taking thousands of people and thousands and thousands of tonnes of equipment all the way around the planet in the most inefficient way, whilst we then put these high-powered, gas-guzzling, noisy Formula One cars onto a racetrack, burning more fossil fuels in front of the world for our entertainment. It's absolutely right that Formula One has had to answer some fairly big questions around this. And whilst it might be easy, again, to use the same arguments to say, well, what choice have we got? Formula One's a global sport. It goes to racetracks all around the planet because we've got huge fan bases there in those locations. We have to go there. The championship is based on a number of racetracks coming together to form a global competition, a competition which is steeped in history, which has a huge amount of tradition behind it. To stop it now, to just to can it and say, right, it's all over, would be curtailing an industry worth billions of dollars. Thousands of people, in fact, thousands and thousands of people, if we take the extended support industry and networks around Formula One, would lose their jobs. There's no obvious alternate way of moving people and freight around the world as quickly as we would need to do to keep a championship going in the world of Formula One. And those are really easy things to throw back in the face of this environmental criticism 
and say, look, the show must go on. We just got to continue. Everyone else can do their part, but Formula One, you got to leave us alone because we can't do this any other way. But the point that I want to make is that Formula One hasn't done that. Formula One has taken this really difficult moral question, a really difficult question. They've taken a huge amount of rightful criticism aimed at our sport in the face of a changing world. And they've not shied away from it. They've not hidden from it. They've not hidden behind excuses. They have faced it head on. They are looking for solutions to those problems. And those solutions are coming. They are looking at changing Formula One events to become carbon net zero by 2030. And that's a real push to make that happen. That's not just some box ticking exercise. There are a lot of things changing in the background of Formula One to make that a reality. But one of the biggest things that Formula One is doing, and one of the things that I'm most excited to see the results of, is that they're utilizing the skills and the strengths they have within their own industry. The same skills and strengths and talents that put on this wonderful show, that design and create these amazing cars that people have watched for years, that tune in, in their hundreds of millions from across the globe to watch. These unbelievable feats of technology that we race wheel to wheel on a Sunday afternoon are designed by a brilliant group of people. They are made, manufactured by a brilliant group of people, each housed within the 10 F1 teams on the grid. Now we saw during the pandemic just how adaptable those skills and those technologies, the resources that F1 has available to it, we saw how adaptable they are when they turned their attention, when Formula One was on, a, a, on hold, they turned their attention to making things like parts for ventilators, components that could help the NHS fight this global pandemic that was coming so rapidly over the horizon and affecting so many people. So they turned the Formula One skill set and put it to another use. And when it comes to this huge question of environmental impact that Formula One is, as I said before, so rightly having to face, the same things are now applying. Formula One is dealing with that question head on by saying, well, okay, yes, we have got to fly tons of equipment and thousands of people all around the world. And actually, the way our model works, that's not something that's particularly easy to change. So is there something we can do about the way we transport that equipment, about the way we burn fossil fuels, about how much of an impact we have? And they are addressing that in a number of different ways, in the ways of turning their events into carbon neutral events. That's a huge step in the right direction. But one of the biggest things, and one of the things that could end up having the biggest impact overall, is the idea of trying to reinvent the way that cars, aeroplanes, industry is powered. We use fossil fuels for everything we have done for so long now, and only now is it very slowly and gradually just starting to change, but only in the tiniest way. Formula One's looked at that challenge and thought to itself, we have the skills and the resources, the technology, the infrastructure. We are way more adaptable. We are much more rapid in terms of development than almost any other sector out there. So instead of making excuses about why Formula One should just be allowed to carry on doing what it's doing, palming the question away, it's trying to become the solution to its own problem. 
And even bigger than that, if it can become the solution to Formula One's own problem, that same solution may well cascade out and become a solution to so many other people around the world. If Formula One can come up with a sustainably produced fuel that lowers emissions, perhaps even eventually to a point where it's zero emissions, just imagine the impact that could have not just on Formula One, but on the planet as a whole. How it could revolutionize humanity, perhaps even. That might sound like a huge claim, but that's the level that Formula One's thinking at. And the point is, they could sit there as a sport and they could palm off these difficult questions, these questions of morality that people are throwing at them. They could hide behind easy excuses and say, well, look, until somebody else comes up with a solution to get us around the world in a much more environmentally friendly way, we're just going to have to carry on doing what we're doing. But they're not doing that. And I think this is my point here. We all face difficult questions at times in life. Questions over morality, over things that we do, over things that our companies do, whether we drive a car to work, whether we smoke cigarettes, whether we take an aeroplane on holiday. There are rightly questions that can be asked over all of those things, as well as many other aspects of our lives. What do we eat? Where do we shop? What do we teach our children? So many opinions around so many aspects of our life that other people have. Many of those opinions may well be justified on so many levels. They may well pose questions that people often ask us or that we might want to ask ourselves. But how do we answer some of those really difficult questions? Some are much easier to answer than others. But I think for the purposes of this podcast, I'm interested in the really difficult questions. The ones that pose a significant threat. The change poses a threat to our existence or our way of doing things, to our companies or to our lives, to our families. It might pose a threat to our finances to have to make a change like this that people are calling for. So what do we do in these situations? How do we answer these really difficult questions, the questions of morality? And it's not always as simple as it might sound. And I think the conclusions that I've drawn from all of this, having taken some inspiration from the world of Formula One, sitting there asking myself my own questions of morality, I'm looking at Formula One thinking, well, what Formula One is doing here is it's using the skills that it has within itself to try and answer those questions. It's putting its own resources and technologies into finding a solution to the problems that it's facing. And I guess, although it's easy to say, well, Formula One's huge, it's got a huge amount of money, resource available to it, huge numbers of people, of course it can do those things. But we're talking about scale here. And if we're talking about us as individuals, these questions also come at a smaller scale. And this doesn't have to be just about environmental impact. We face moral dilemmas every single day. Should we take this decision or this decision? Should we go down this path or this path? One path might be an easy option, one might be more tricky, but one might hold greater value at the end of it. Should I eat this food, which is going to taste amazing, but probably won't be as healthy for me as this food? They're moral dilemmas. They are dilemmas that we're faced with all the way through every single day. And they scale from as simple as whether to eat the chocolate bar from the fridge or to take a piece of fruit out the fruit bowl to much bigger questions around the way we travel, the way we spend our money, the way we live our lives as a whole. 
But I think the answer to coming up with a solution to those problems is to take a moment to ask ourselves, what's our end goal here and is there more than one way to achieve it? Is there more than one route to the success that I'm trying to achieve? And if there is more than one route to that eventual goal, what are the impacts of either choice that I make? What are the impacts of those routes? And if we're really clever about this, is there even a way, like Formula One has done, to answer some of those questions in the way that you believe to be morally correct and still come out the other side using that solution to create an advantage for yourself? to create the success that you might have craved in the first place, but doing it through a very different route. Formula One has done exactly that because it's faced with this huge dilemma, and yet it's now throwing its resource into a solution that could end up being perhaps Formula One's greatest ever achievement. When faced with massive criticism, it took on board that criticism and it embraced it and it utilized its own skills to try and find a solution, to try and improve its impact on the world. And in doing so, it may end up being an enormous success, way bigger than anything that Formula One has right now, potentially. Can we do something similar on a much smaller scale? And an example could be, if we're faced with a dilemma of of whether to eat meat because it has an environmental impact on the world or reduce the amount of meat we eat and eat more of a plant-based diet. It's something that I have embraced myself over recent years. But could we take that decision and instead of just going to the supermarket and buying more plant-based meals, could we, if we have that skill set in our locker, if we have the space in our garden, if we have the environment in which to be able to do it, could we start growing our own fruits? Could we start growing our own vegetables? Could we start growing, producing some of our own food? Because that, of course, answers that question of trying to reduce your impact on the environment, but potentially even, if we could grow enough, we could start selling some of that fruit locally. We could sell it to neighbours, to friends and families, and maybe make a few quid on the side, but also try to impact the lives of others around us because they now have a sustainably produced food source on their doorstep. Now, is that a little solution that somebody listening to this podcast could embrace? It's a small thing. It might be a change in lifestyle for you, but it could be one that answers a moral question that you've been faced with over time. If you're somebody who faces questions of morality around your shopping habits, for example, are you someone who's been sucked into fast fashion? If the question of buying too many clothes on a more regular basis is something that you wrestle with, Is there a solution to that that could not only reduce your impact in in terms of how many clothes you're buying, how many trips to the shops you're making, but could you do something that actually might benefit the wider community? Could you set up a clothing exchange in your local area where people, instead of throwing out clothes, give them to your exchange, you could perhaps sort them out and rehome them? There's a massive market for second-hand clothes, for used clothes, for vintage clothing. Could that become a business for you? Could you charge a few quid as part of this process and make a little bit of money, but also answer that moral question you had and also do something for your wider community as a result? Could you put your skill sets to use to answer the questions and have a bigger impact on the world in a positive sense? The point is answering these difficult moral questions isn't always just a case of compromising. It's not always just a case of taking a big hit. You don't have to just 
put your life on hold because it seems like every single thing you do has some kind of negative impact on the environment or the world or the planet or the people around you. It's easy to look at it that way, but the reality is that we all have to work together to find solutions to all manner of problems, environmental or otherwise. The problems we face every single day, we can communicate with each other, put our heads together and find solutions. We all have skill sets that might benefit us or the people around us. And if you don't have the skill sets, maybe you know somebody else who does. Can you tap into a network of people that might be able to help each other to answer these kinds of questions? The first stage, of course, is understanding what we can and can't do. What are our strengths and weaknesses? What things do we have at our disposal that might be able to help us answer these questions that we're facing? You know, for me, in terms of my environmental impact, I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford to buy an electric car. I drive an electric car today, and I appreciate there are other environmental impacts on that. It's not the total solution. I get it. But I have reduced my meat consumption. I'm looking into solar energy for my home. I can pay into carbon offset schemes that might help reduce my carbon footprint. But it still doesn't stop the fact that I have jumped on an aeroplane, travelled all the way around the world to give a 45-minute talk before I then head home again. That's just a question I don't have the answer to. I don't know what the right thing to do is in my situation. And it is going to be different for every single person. There is no single right answer that should be blanket across the board, the one that everybody has to adhere to. And I think that's also okay to not have the answers. The fact that these questions are difficult by their very nature mean that lots of people won't be able to answer them very easily. But as long as we do think about them, as long as we don't shy away from them, I think that's the way we have to approach this. If somebody asks us a difficult moral question about something that we do, about something our business does or the way that we operate, it may well be there isn't a feasible solution for us to do things differently at this point. And you can ask yourself, well, can I do something about that? And when I ask myself, can I do something about the fact that I need to travel around the world to do my job? The simple answer is no. Can I change my job? Well, perhaps I could, but that's not an easy one. What I really need is technology to move forward to provide an alternate solution for me that I can then use to continue doing my job but minimise my impact. That's one of the things that Formula One is embracing. Now, I can't operate on that scale, but perhaps on a smaller scale, I can. Perhaps I can do my bit in other areas. I can answer other questions by saying, yes, I can do something a little bit differently here. I didn't want this segment to be all about the environment, and it isn't. This is about facing difficult questions, moral questions, moral dilemmas. You could be running a business and you might have a moral dilemma about whether to pay staff more or less money. You could keep them on a lower wage and see your profit margin improved, particularly in the short term. But over the longer term, is it going to start to impact how happy your workforce are? There's a moral dilemma right there. Do you want a happier workforce at a greater cost or is the thing that matters most to you the profit at the end of the day? You go back to what we said earlier on. What's your end goal here? And if you've got an end goal in mind, then it could be a certain profit target. You know, there are different routes to get there. It may well be that getting your workforce to deliver maximum output with the lowest amount of outlay from your business in terms of paying them less 
could be a way in the short term of maximizing your profits. But over the long term, is it going to have a negative impact? Are these people going to get pissed off and leave? Are they going to stop producing at the same rate? Is the quality of their work going to start going down? If your goal is to have a longer term success and still produce profit, but over a longer period, it may well be that a small increase in pay can have such a big impact in terms of their happiness and their well-being, in terms of their loyalty, in terms of their drive to turn up for work and do a good job, that actually, although the profits might take a very small hit in the beginning, in the long term, you sustain that high level of quality. You sustain the output from these happy people that are coming into your business every day. If we think about it, we've faced questions like this all through our lives. As kids, when you had a packet of sweets, you probably faced little internal questions of, do I keep this packet of sweets secret from my mate here or my brother or sister and have them all to myself because I love the sweets? Or do I get them out and share them? At the end of the day, it's the same basic moral question, isn't it? What's my end goal here? Is my end goal just to eat the sweets and get through the packet as quickly as possible and to enjoy the taste? Or is my end goal to build friendships, to build relationships amongst these group of kids? We're not thinking on those levels when we're that age, but ultimately that's the question that we're faced with. So having an understanding of what our end goal is in any of these situations, on whatever level, what's our biggest priority? What's most important to us? Answering those questions is a big part of the key to being able to take the right decision when the big question comes, when we're faced with those big moral dilemmas. With the big question that I've faced that I started this podcast with, If I think about my end goal, my end goal is to build a career to support my family. That is my goal here, is to support my family in life, to have enough money to house them, to clothe them and to feed them, which is the same goal that so many people in this world will share. And the way I go about trying to satisfy that goal is by doing the thing that I know I can do well, the thing that I know I have the skills to be able to achieve. I've developed those skills over years. It's one of my strengths. And that's what I'm falling back on here. And it may well be that I'm hiding behind that to some extent to justify my travel around the world in this unenvironmentally friendly way. But until there is a solution that gives me an alternate way to achieve my goal, to utilize my skills through a career that I've built, I can't see another way around it. And that may or may not sit comfortably with many of you. I don't know. I'm openly admitting here I don't have a better answer. I'd love to know your thoughts on it, if I'm honest with you. Drop me a line. Send me a message. So whilst I may not have an answer that satisfies everybody, doesn't even 100% satisfy me, I'm answering the question that I'm faced with, the question that my daughter asked me just a few days ago in the best way I know how. And that is all that any of us can do. Okay, before we move on to the next topic, the topic of F1 driver contracts, which is of course big news right now, I just want to ask a favour of all of you. Would you please just share the podcast this week for me? Tell your friends about it. Pop it on your WhatsApp groups at work or amongst your family, amongst your football teammates. 
pop it on your social media channels. Just tell people, give them a recommendation to give it a try. That's all I ask for you. The podcast has been growing steadily over the past few months, which I really, really love, but I want it to grow further and faster. I want it to get to more people, to share these messages with more and more people like us, like-minded people that can join this community. And to do that, I need your help. So do me that little favor. Just take a moment to just share it or send it to somebody else and I'll be hugely grateful. Okay, so there's been a lot of talk in recent months, but also weeks and especially in the last few days around Formula One driver contracts. Now, we all know the story, the Oscar Piastri, Fernando Alonso, Daniel Ricciardo, McLaren versus Alpine. It all came to a head this weekend where the contract recognition board within Formula One recognised that it was McLaren that had the valid contract with Oscar Piastri and it was Alpine who didn't, who no longer had any right to the services of that particular driver. And it's been a difficult situation for a lot of people in that whole tangled web Oscar Piastri and McLaren have come out of this very happy, of course. McLaren have a new driver, a driver that's very exciting, uh, a prospect that excites, I think, a lot of McLaren fans. The lineup of Lando Norris, Oscar Piastri is one that, at the very least, is exciting. He's an unproven talent in Formula One, of course, Piastri, having not raced a Formula One car yet but it's exciting. He's had success in the lower categories repeatedly, and if he can translate that into Formula One, well, the team will be in a very good place. It leaves Daniel Ricciardo in a difficult situation. He's left without a drive. Who knows what the future actually holds for him? Fernando Alonso over at Alpine, well, he's okay, he's happy. He's jumped ship from Alpine, and he's signed himself a deal at Aston Martin. So he did that all alone, on his own, and he's got himself tied up with a nice little deal. His future's secure. So it's Alpine as a team who've come out of all this perhaps worse off, perhaps looking quite embarrassed. This is a difficult situation for them. It caught them by surprise. First of all, their double world champion, their lead driver, without telling them, without giving them any hint that this might happen, simply announced on social media that he'd signed for a rival organisation. That's a blow to any team, not only in terms of losing the driver, but also in terms of integrity in terms of embarrassment that that's happened in public without them knowing about it. And then they go to announce their young driver as the person who will step up and take the place of Fernando, who's gone. And that all blows up in the most embarrassing fashion, as we've all seen play out over the last few months. So as a team, Alpine seem like they've massively taken their eye off the ball. And it is that element of this whole saga that I wanted to delve into in a little bit more depth today in today's podcast. Whilst we clearly don't know all of the details of exactly what happened in this whole mess on any of the sides, what happened with the Contract Recognition Board's announcement, their statement following the hearing, was that some of those details emerged. Details around when the contracts were signed, what kind of contracts were signed, what Alpine didn't do that they perhaps should have done further back down this timeline. And if you believe the details that are being published now across the motorsport media, it seems like Alpine have just dropped the ball, like they made some serious schoolboy errors. With the drivers being a Formula One team's biggest assets, really, most valuable assets in those organisations, it would seem logical that the contracts that tie those into your team, that protect the value that you have invested in over time, to keep that within your organisation should be given the utmost importance. 
Yet someone as valuable as Fernando Alonso was allowed to slip away, and then this young kid that the Alpine, the Renault organization had invested so much time, effort, money and resource into growing, into building, developing as a future star, as a future asset for the team, also was seemingly allowed to just be snatched from underneath their noses when they weren't looking. It will have cost the team a huge amount of money in terms of the lost performance that those drivers could have potentially brought to the team in the future. They've also had to pay all of the costs, which comes to something like half a million pounds in terms of legal costs from going through this process with the contract recognition board in which they lost. But they've now also got to start the new process of trying to find another driver, perhaps one like a Pierre Gasly. They may have to pay a huge amount of money to buy out of an existing contract to get over to their team. And all of that seems like it's happened because of a lack of attention to detail. These are the kinds of details that Formula One as an industry is so known for. It's prevalent throughout our industry. I mean, I've worked inside a Formula One team for 10 years. I've signed contracts. I, I know how officious they are as organizations. And even since leaving McLaren, I've gone back and worked for organizations, with organizations on a consulting basis or as a supplier. I've had meetings at teams and every single time the contracts, the NDAs, the details that they go into to protect their IP, to make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed is exactly what you'd expect from a Formula One team. So that's why it's so surprising that this whole situation has been allowed to happen. Reading between the lines, it almost seems like Alpine or the people at Alpine, the legal department at Alpine, were, were just too busy at the time to get this contract done. It was sitting there. The, the basis of a contract had been outlined, but no one kind of got round to actually making it official, to getting those contracts finalised and signed and then lodged with the CRB. These simple details just never happened, perhaps because they were a bit too busy. They were busy doing other things, which seems like the kind of excuse that you and I would make for not doing the washing up, not cleaning the car out this weekend, because I was just too busy. I was doing other things. Not the kind of excuses you would expect to hear from a Formula One team when it comes to their own driver contracts. And I think this is where the biggest lesson lies for us here, because these details that are seemingly small at the time can go on to have quite big impacts, quite big knock-on effects. And that can be exactly the same for us. Making a slight oversight, leaving something out, not doing something we said we were going to do can, further down the line, come back to bite us. It can escalate. It can grow into something way bigger than we first thought it was going to be. And that's exactly what, of course, has happened to the Alpine Formula One team here. Doing what you said you were going to do not only makes you productive, it not only gets things done, but it also makes you reliable in the eyes of others. It makes you a reliable person, somebody that people can count on, that they can trust. And that's really important. It's really important in life. It's super important when it comes to business. If you're the kind of person in the office who says they're going to do something but doesn't, very quickly all trust breaks down. If you're a company that says they can deliver something but then fails to deliver upon it at a deadline or to a certain quality, no one's going to want to do business with you. You're not going to get repeat business. Your business will very quickly disappear down the pan. 
And of course the same thing applies in our social circles. If we tell somebody that we're going to be there to collect them at a certain time and then we're not, well they probably won't believe if we repeatedly do that that they'll ever turn up on time. If our teachers at school set us homework to be on a certain date and we continually fail to meet that date, we'll start to build a reputation, a negative one. So delivering on promises and meeting deadlines is super important in all aspects of life. If we say we're going to do something, we have to then go ahead and do it. And if we don't think we can achieve it, we don't think we can do it, we shouldn't ever say we can. Because it's that disappointment which causes the biggest negative impact. But all of this just circles back to details. It's all about focusing on details. If we say we can deliver something at a certain quality on a certain time, those are details that we have to take seriously. We have to give them a level of importance that means 100% we will make sure that we deliver. The negative impact of not following through on promises, of not delivering what we've said we can deliver, can be such a long-lasting effect. And that's one of the things that I wonder whether the Alpine situation might actually cause them further problems some way down the line. Will people think twice about going to drive for that particular team, for working for that particular team? I mean, two of their drivers have just jumped ship and gone to other organisations, gone to competitors, despite being offered a drive with a team, both of them. But also, the details of how and why that's happened would seem to give no confidence in how that team's run to anyone looking on from the outside. I've done a whole episode of this podcast on the importance of attention to detail, so you can go and check that out later. But for this one, I wanted to come back to the importance of delivering on what you said you were going to deliver, the importance of reputation, the importance of doing things properly. And yes, of course, it comes down to details. Details absolutely matter to me. They are things that I try and encourage my own children to absolutely have a focus on as well. But if they don't do something that they said they're going to do, that has even more of an impact on me. That's something that I want to knock out of them early doors. I don't want them to grow up thinking they can let people down or even not thinking that some of their behaviours and actions would be letting people down when actually other people might see that they are. And I use a very simple example here, one that frustrates the hell out of me because every single day at the moment, I'm telling my children when they come out of their bedroom to turn their light off and they're forgetting almost every single day and they say they're going to do it and I say to them don't leave your light on next time you come out don't leave your light on do we all agree we can't leave lights on and I go through the whole reasons why the environmental impact the waste of energy you know the cost there are so many reasons we shouldn't leave lights on in a room when we're not there and every time they say, yeah, sorry, Dad, I'll do it next time. I'll make sure next time I won't leave the light on. And they do it. And it's that part of the whole interaction that frustrates me most because they've told me they're not going to do something which they then go ahead and do. And it might be so small. It might be something as simple as leaving a light on. But the fact that they have promised me they'll do something and then they didn't do it has even greater importance to me. At Alpine, they had promised to give Oscar Piastri a contract. They had figured out the terms of that contract, the basic structure of that contract, and they had promised to give him the contract. Mark Webber, a part of Oscar Piastri's management team, 
had continually chased for that contract, if you believe the reports that are now emerging. He'd gone back on multiple occasions saying, look, can you hurry up? We need the contract. Can you get the contract through so we can review it and sign it? And Alpine had continually, apparently, said, yeah, of course, yeah, we're on it, we'll do it. We've just got the, the launch of the car coming up in the next week, so after that, can we do it after that? We'll make sure you get it straight after that. And then they didn't do it. And they repeatedly didn't do it. They failed to deliver on a promise that they'd made to somebody as influential and as important in their long-term strategy as Oscar Piastri. And the result of that was him and his management team and those around him lost faith in that organisation. And the impact of that is they've now lost what could have been one of their biggest future assets. That's why these little details matter. And when it comes to my kids leaving their bedroom lights on, yes, this is just me. But in future, if they grow up thinking along those lines that these little things don't matter, that by telling somebody, I'll be in at work at nine o'clock tomorrow, and then you get in at half past nine, it might not be a big problem. Half an hour might not be the end of the world. But if you continue to do it, then it becomes a massive problem because all faith in you breaks down. And what have we got in terms of our reputation if no one has faith in us? If no one believes in us, we've got nothing. We have no value. I told you earlier on that I'm here in Thailand because the company that's brought me here has faith that I can deliver value at what must have come at great cost to them. I can deliver value that makes that worthwhile to their event tomorrow. And I believe I can. But I've now got to go and deliver on that because I've told them that I can do it. We had a briefing call a few weeks ago. We ran through exactly what it was they were after, what they needed. And I said, yeah, I can deliver that. And now I've got to go and do it. And if I don't do it, the feedback from this organisation is going to be poor. They're going to be disappointed. They'll have no faith or trust in me. They won't recommend me to other people. The people in the audience at tomorrow's event won't go off to their companies and their organisations and recommend me as a speaker to come back to future events. But if I say that I can deliver value to them, something that's bespoke to them, something that they will see something positive from, and then I turn up and I deliver it on time, and I deliver it to a high quality, and it's engaging, and they all take value from it, well, they'll all go away back to their organisations with a positive impression of me and what I can do in these kind of situations, and that's how your reputation grows. Your reputation takes so long to build, years effectively to build a good solid reputation, but it can take literally a few days, even less, to wipe all of that out. These poor decisions, these little overlooked details can wipe out years of good work. And if I turn up tomorrow and I've left my notes at home and I didn't tap into the things that we discussed on the briefing call, if I went off piece and I delivered something that I thought might offer value, but it wasn't what they wanted, it's not going to work. Promising to deliver something and then delivering it is one of the most important aspects of what we do in all walks of our life, whether it's personal or business. And your reputation, what people think of you, what others think of you, can be such a big driver in your future success and your future opportunities. It's all very well to take this maverick or rebellious frame of mind that I don't care what other people think of me. I'm just going to do me. I'm doing me. And if others don't like it, that's up to them. And on some levels, you know, that can work for you. For some people, that can work for you. 
But when you're delivering a service to somebody, when you're delivering a product to somebody, when you're doing a job for somebody, and that covers most people in this world at at least some point in their life, they're working for somebody else. They're trying to impress somebody else. They're trying to get a job. They're trying to build a relationship. They're trying to attract a partner. You might be looking for investment in your new startup business, a business that at this point may not even have a product or a service to show somebody, nothing tangible. So what you're asking somebody to invest in is you, is the team behind the business. And what on earth have they got to go on other than reputation at that point? Your reputation can be almost everything in scenarios like that. We talked in a recent podcast about Daniel Ricciardo, who as a driver had a, a pretty spectacular reputation from his Red Bull years of outpacing on many occasions Max Verstappen, going up very well against him, moving to Renault, struggling at first, but then turning that around to deliver some brilliant performances for them as well. But at McLaren, he struggled over the past couple of seasons, and as a result, his reputation behind the wheel has undoubtedly suffered a little bit. But his reputation as a man, given what he's just been through, through this difficult scenario with contracts and him being ousted effectively from his 2023 contract, I feel like as a man, he's come out of this looking pretty classy. I feel like he's handled what must have been a very difficult, pretty traumatic situation, a real struggle, both inside the car, but also outside of the car. I think he's handled it with integrity. I think he's come out of this with his head held high and that will go some way to standing him in good stead if he wants to go to another team looking for another opportunity. Yes, the results in the car haven't been good enough, but perhaps that was a specific situation between his driving style and the McLaren car's characteristic. But as a brand ambassador, as a person that you would want in your team to create a good environment, to represent sponsors, to represent the brands that partner with your organization, Daniel Ricciardo could be a really good fit. And that's because the way you conduct yourself can be as important, often more important, than your actual performance. The way you go about doing things, the way you speak to people, the way you treat people, the way you behave around the office, the way you interact with others, the way you present yourself, the way you present your work, those details, which are the ones that are often so overlooked, can be the ones that really help to shape people's opinions of you. And it's those opinions that affect decisions that can go some way to determining the level of success that you end up achieving. So for me, there are a few little tips and tricks and tools that can really help us, help to remind us of these details that otherwise we can overlook, that we can forget, because they are seemingly so small to us in the grand scheme of what we have to achieve on any given certain day. But one of those little tiny details might be the only detail that somebody else sees of us that particular day. It might be the only detail that they get to form an opinion of us on. It might be an email or a text message that comes to them. It might be a phone call or a conversation. It might be a first meeting. It might only take five minutes. Five minutes out of our day might be nothing. And it could easily get lost. The details of that could get lost. But to the person on the other end of that, it might be the only thing that they're basing their opinions of us upon. And so there are some things like a little tip that's an easy one, that's an obvious one to say, and it's one that I do almost all the time, is just to 
read your email or your text message or your WhatsApp before you hit send. Now you might be thinking, of course everyone does that. They don't, my wife doesn't do it. My wife sends me, what, 10 messages a day. Nine out of 10 of those will either have spelling mistakes, it'll have an autocorrect word that means it no longer makes sense. She'll have jumbled something up, she'll have sent it to the wrong person because she types really quickly with her thumbs on her phone, hit send, and didn't read it before she sent it. Now, it's a tiny thing. And to me, I'm used to it. It doesn't matter to me. I can kind of learn to read between the lines, learn to interpret what she was saying, what the text message actually says to what she meant. But imagine if that's going to a client or going to a colleague, going to somebody that might be basing an opinion of you on that message. And so just taking your thumb away from that send button. And if you think about the length of your WhatsApp message, What's it gonna take you, 10 seconds to read it back through? And if you've made a couple of mistakes, maybe another 10 seconds to correct it. We can all afford to give 20 or 30 seconds to correcting that message before it finally goes, to putting it in as good a place as it can be before it lands on the desk or in the palm of the hand of the person it was intended for. My kids laugh at me because my WhatsApp messages always have the correct punctuation, they have capital letters, they have commas, they have full stops, they have everything as it should be as if I was writing a formal letter. And that probably is ridiculous. And I don't need that level of detail to go to certain people, but it's something that's ingrained in me now. So whenever I've typed out a message, whether it's an email or a WhatsApp or whatever, I will go back and I'll reread it and I'll go through the whole thing and make sure I've read it before I send it. If you are a colleague, a friend, a family member of me, you will rarely ever get a WhatsApp message that has a spelling mistake in it or a punctuation mistake or an autocorrect word. I'm sure it's happened at times before somebody, somebody sends me one and points it out but I take my time to try and correct those details. And the reason that I do that is because it's so ingrained in me after years of doing this, but it's because I want my messaging to be absolutely clear. I want there to be no ambiguity about what it is I'm trying to say. I want the message to be absolutely clear. I want it to be written in the right way. And I want there to be no room for somebody to misinterpret what I'm saying. And that's come from checking and double checking and correcting and making sure that something's as perfect as it can be before I finally send it on to the person it was intended for. My thought process is that that little message, that little WhatsApp or text is a digital representation of me. It's a tiny little piece of me and my character that somebody's gonna receive on their screen. It's a little window into my personality. It may be the tiniest window, but that's how I see it. Things like the iPhone and autocorrect, of course, have meant that for many people, they don't feel a need to go back and check their messages because they have a total trust in the technology that that's gonna do it for them. There won't be any spelling mistakes because the iPhone's gonna sort it out for me. But it doesn't always work that way. And taking that moment to go back and check is something that I would always recommend anyone does. I mean, another little tool that can really help with details like this in making sure that we follow through on promises and we don't let people down is utilizing things like the reminders tool in our phones. It's something that I've only recently kind of discovered the use case for. And I'm telling you all of this, not sitting here in some ivory tower, I'm not very good at some of these things. 
I've been telling my wife that I'm going to get all my expenses collated and I haven't done it. I've been telling her that for about a month, probably more. I should have never let it get anywhere near that out of hand. And the worst part is that I have told my wife that I will do it and I haven't done it. That's me letting myself down. And probably internally, I've told myself, well, it's only my wife. You know, it's not a business. It's not another company. It's only my wife. But that shouldn't matter. It matters to me now saying this out loud. It annoys me that I've done it. I feel like I've let myself down. So I've just started using the reminders tool in my phone to give me a little digital notification, a little alarm, a little reminder at various points. So when I get home from work, I can set a reminder that's location-based. So as I pull into my driveway, the reminder goes off and says, right, get on with your expenses, Elvis. And these little tiny things, of course you can choose to ignore them, but it's just another little reminder of something that you might otherwise forget. If it's difficult for you to bump it up your priority list because it's such a small thing for you, having the digital reminder can be a nice way to just nudge you, give you a little poke in the, in the ribs to say, get on with it, don't forget it this time. The same thing can apply with appointments that you've got, with phone calls that you said you'd make to somebody, with an email that you promised you would deliver to somebody by a certain date. If you were gonna send somebody a document, set yourself a reminder. And these things take seconds to do. Now you can even do it without typing anything. You can tell your phone to set your reminder and let you know at a certain time and on a certain date or when you arrive at a certain place. And these little tiny tools can be so valuable in rescuing situations where you might have let yourself or somebody else down because you might have just forgotten. Things happen, life gets in the way, we're busy people. The kids might be sick and that might take over your day, but if you've promised somebody that you'd send them a document by midday on Tuesday, having a little reminder just pop up on your phone at 10 a.m. that morning might just give you the nudge you need to take five minutes out of that morning to send the document and then you don't let the person down. It might save your reputation. It might help to build the right kind of reputation that you're after. And all it took was five or 10 seconds of setting the reminder in the first place. So don't be afraid to utilize these tools. We are not all built the same way. We don't all have these magical memories that don't forget things. I forget things all the time. I have to use tools like this to remind me of certain things. I used to be able to just keep it all in my head, but now I'm so busy that there's no possible way I could do that. I don't have a PA to call me up and remind me when I need to do something, and so I have to use my phone to do it. But it's a really impressive, capable way of doing that. So by embracing that technology, it can help us to protect our reputations, and that can be a hugely valuable and powerful thing to do. I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, I have no doubt it was way more complex than this, but imagine if the person in the legal department at Alpine had set them a reminder to send that contract to Oscar Piastri. Imagine if it were as simple as that. They might still have an incredibly promising driver on their books, ready to take that slot that Fernando Alonso vacated. Not only could that give them a wonderful set of possibilities for the future in terms of performance that he could offer, but also they may not have lost the trust and the faith 
in Oscar Piastri and his team of what that team was capable of. It may well be that that relationship may not have broken down because they might have delivered what they said they were going to deliver at the time they said they were going to deliver it. And I'm sure it wasn't just a case of setting a reminder in a phone. I'm sure there were all sorts of complications. But when you've got something as valuable and as important as that, and this goes for any one of us, all on different scales, different levels of importance, but it's all relative. It's all relative to us and our lives. When we have something that's important, something we want to protect, something we want to hold on to, some body that we want to impress, utilising whichever tools and tricks and tips we can to maintain those important details, sometimes the really small details. But backing up our promises with actions, backing up our words with behaviours, are some of the most important things in life. They can cost you dearly when you get them wrong and it can come down to the tiniest, seemingly insignificant details. But on the other end of whichever interaction it is you're having, those details may not be quite as insignificant as you think they are. Guys, thank you so, so much for sticking with me all the way through this episode, if that's what you've done. I really appreciate every single one of you. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you found some value in it. And if you've been here before, well, I appreciate you coming back. Thank you. It means the world to me. If any of you took anything from today's episode or previous episodes, I would love it if you could spare just a moment. And that literally is all it takes to pop over, if you're listening on Apple, into the Apple Podcast Store. Leave me a rating, five stars if that's what you think it's worth, that would be great, and a small review. And it really is just a few words, it takes a few moments, that's all. But a review of this podcast means the world to me. It makes a huge difference in how many people can see the podcast, how many people find it, how the Apple Podcast Store serves that up into other people's feeds. And those things make a massive difference to how this podcast can grow, how we can build this community. You guys have been here early on in the first 40 episodes, but I want this to grow and grow and become bigger, become a bigger part of my life, but also become a bigger part of your life. So anything you can do in that regard to interact with me or the podcast, I'd be hugely grateful for. Give me a like, a follow, a subscribe, send me a message and share this around to your networks. It would mean the world. Thank you. Episode marks the end of season four. That's 40 episodes in now. End of season four, but we carry on. Next week, without a break, we start season five, episode 41. And I'd love to see many of you back here next week to enjoy another episode. Once again, I apologise for the lower audio quality in this particular week's episode. It is just a one-off and next week we'll be back to normal, doing it from my home studio. I hope to see you there. Thank you again. And whatever it is you're up to over the course of the next week, try and remember this. Use it as a mantra for your week, a little guiding light, something you can check in with yourself at the end of every day and just ask yourself, did you manage to achieve this or somewhere close to it? Do the right things and do the things right.